You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Lee Atwater was somebody who I think of as one of the first real dirty tricks players in politics. Started out working for Strom Thurmond in South Carolina. Went to Washington, did very well there when the presidential race came and Mike Dukakis from Massachusetts was running and doing very well. It was his task to bring Dukakis down. And the way he did this was he started the now infamous Willie Horton rumor. There was already an existing law in Massachusetts that some prisoners could have a weekend furlough. And Willie Horton was one of these. Now, mind you, this started before Dukakis was the governor. So there was really no onus on him. But Willie Horton was let out for a weekend, never returned, and ended up raping a girl. And Lee Atwater brought this all down on Mike Dukakis's head, made it look like it was Dukakis's fault. He would leak things to the press. He was just good at planting ideas in people's heads. Next thing you knew, his career was over. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and this episode, we are going to look at the two, the 1988 presidential campaign, and it is a, quite a story for George H.W. Bush. First of all, he has to run against Bob Dole, one of the giants of the United States Senate, and then when he gets out of that race, he is um, up against Mike Dukakis, who uh, is one of these people who kind of came out of nowhere and really kind of disappeared after after the race is over. Uh, but at one point, Mike Dukakis is up by 17 points, and George Bush is going to claw his way out of that hole to get elected president of the United States. And it's cr- quite a story, really, when you look at it. And, and, and really kind of an interesting campaign year on the Democratic and Republican side during the primaries. I am committed to this fight as a parent a grandparent. And for me, it gets right back to education. Let's get the drug dealers out of our schools and let's get reading, writing, and arithmetic and respect back into our schools. The fight against drugs, the fight against international terror, representing our country in 76 foreign countries abroad, since becoming vice president. This has all been part of my work as vice president. And now I've begun a new challenge, running for president of the United States. And I mean, I mean to run hard, to fight hard, to stand on the issues and to win. But let me add this, let me add this. I've been a loyal vice president. I've stood with this president. And I will continue to be loyal to this president. And if the price, if the price to the top of the ladder, if the price to the top of the ladder is to shove the president down a notch or jump away when the going gets tough, I am not willing to pay that price. What's the difference between the Republican candidates for president? Only one grew up in Depression-era Kansas and spent three years recovering from combat wounds in World War II. Only one has been the Republican leader in the Senate and led the fight to save Social Security, cut excessive government spending, and reduce income taxes. Only one, one of us, Bob Dole. Bob Dole will make the difference New Hampshire and America need. Dole for president, one of us. Now, while these two guys are your clear front runners, there are several other candidates that are going to be running, and one of them is Pat Robertson, who is a televangelist who was based in Virginia Beach and facility there in Virginia Beach um, with the hotel and the 700 Club. And what you're going to see, and it's interesting because 
if you go back to the 1960s in George Bush's early career, you hear about the John Birchers, the John Birch Society, and their rise. And people act like every time you see something like the, the MAGA, Make America Great Again group with Donald Trump, come in to the Republican Party and unseat a lot of the establishment uh, of people, that that's, that's something unusual. In reality, it's happened over and over again in our party, in the Republican Party. Um, and 1988 is one of those years when the Christian coalition and the Christian evangelical voters as a block emerge and become a real power, especially in Iowa, and they will do this again in the 1990s. Then you have the Tea Party later, and of course the MAGA group, the Make America Great Again group that's, that's doing it now. And uh, it, it's not all that unusual. What, what really... I, will tell you how, what has happened traditionally through these years is you'll see the establishment of the party that gets unseated. These folks come in for a little while. Then it's sort of like the new car smell goes away, and, um, and you'll see a lot of the rank and file disappear, but the uh, leadership becomes part of the establishment, and, and they become a big part of the party moving forward. And so it's really a game of addition, and uh, this is no different than that. Uh, and that's what happened in 1988 in the Iowa caucuses, and it almost does a knockout blow to George H.W. Bush. Uh, one of the difficulties we had in 1988 was uh, was portraying ourselves as agents of change when, when our candidate, George Bush, the vice president, had been Reagan's vice president for eight years. Whatever it is, competing with the Japanese, whatever it is, is education. Uh, as he said uh, when he declared a truce yesterday, I want to be the old George Bush. It may not be as interesting, and we kind of found out here today. I voted about 11,000 times since I've been in the Congress. Well, I'd like to get rid of a few of those votes myself, but 11,000 times and a pretty consistent record. So Senator Robert Dole and wife Elizabeth invited Barbara and Iowa Senator Charles Grassley to join the campaign. Chuck normally stays out of primaries, but in 88 he decided to support me, which is a big boost. I mean, those of us that are doing the endorsements say, boy, we're really helping this guy. I think we have an over-exaggerated opinion of our endorsement. Because Iowans are very independent people. Uh, I think it might influence a few people, but it isn't going to make a big difference. I guess one of us will be here. One of the three of us, or four of us, I mean, we're all going to be out here working. So we got a pretty good team. There would not have been a farm bill if it had not been for the efforts of Bob Dole. Now, if you don't like that, then you're mad at me. But if you think it's a little better than what we had, just go to the caucus and say, I, I think we have a friend of the farmer in Senator Bob Dole, and that's an accurate statement. As Bob Dole locked up the rural vote, Vice President Bush was about to be ambushed in Ames. Republican cavalcade of stars in 1987, better known as the Ames Straw Poll, was the canary in the coal mine for establishment Republicans and the rise of evangelicals. For the last seven years, I've stood side by side with one of the greatest presidents this country's had, and I'm very, very proud of that. We indeed are going to come once again to a time in our, our nation and throughout the world when the term made in America is synonymous with the very best in the world. So the room was packed with our people and they were wearing those hats with Robertson for president on them. And I was hugging all these wonderful people and, uh, you know, uh, they took a, a, a vote. And I didn't, I mean, I really didn't understand what they were doing. But when it was finished, I had won decisively, and George Bush was creamed. I mean, he really was beaten badly in those straw ballots, and the, the, the people were shocked. But I didn't, I didn't, I really didn't understand what the game was. I didn't know what they were doing. Uh, but I do remember the morning after the straw poll, the one Redster had a big cartoon. And it had a picture, a cartoon picture of uh, David and Goliath and portraying um, Pat Robertson as David and uh, George H.W. Bush as Goliath, you know. 
he, his face was shocked. I mean, I remember just looking. I mean, I, I went up and shook his hand. Hi, hi uh, you know, George. We were friends, and and uh, he had that that shocked look. He was horrified after that Ames struggle. He couldn't believe it. <laughs> At that particular time, I never saw the uh, uh, dominance of evangelical Christians within the Republican caucus. Uh, and now, since then, it's been very much demonstrated. Mr. Pat Robertson. Which says a lot about uh, the rise of evangelical uh, voters as a block in Iowa, uh, and, and to some extent in, in the Republican Party. I mean, uh, Pat Robertson was a televangelist. Talk about the ultimate outsider. Neil Bush, who's uh, President H.W. Bush's one of his sons, you know, had referred to um, Robertson supporters and or organizers as cockroaches. And um, I was with Pat kind of behind the stage before this event. Of course, he wanted to come out with both barrels and basically, you know, give the Bush campaign a piece of his mind. But um, <clears throat> more rational uh, heads prevailed and encouraged him that that wasn't the thing that he should do, you know. I had one little woman look at me with just hatred in her eyes. Why don't you get out of the race? Why are you here? I mean, just vitriol. But, you know, that's, that's politics. <laughs> I want a time in America when husbands love their wives, when wives love their husbands, and when men and women together bring up law-abiding, God-fearing children as citizens of the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, it is about five degrees below zero with the wind chill. There are 3,000 frozen media members in downtown Des Moines, and there are enough satellite dishes in this town to dial up Mars. It can only mean one thing. It's Iowa caucus night. Let's party! Bob Dole would claim first on the Republican side, but his victory was overshadowed by an evangelical awakening. Second place, Pat Robertson claimed his own victory. I believe after this win in Iowa, I'm going to be coalescing the conservatives. Many of the Reagan supporters around the country will be coming over to my campaign. Big headlines. I mean, I'm talking about banner headlines across the country. It was remarkable. Robertson beats Bush. That was the story. Because that meant Bush came in third. And this unknown preacher beat him. The vice president's eldest son conceding on behalf of his father, but with still a vision of optimism. And we look forward to the South, a little different environment there, a place where his loyalty with the president will be a plus. George H.W. Bush would regain his footing and later the presidency. When his son George W. would return for his own campaign a decade later, he would learn from Robertson's evangelical outreach and message engaging Iowa Christian conservatives as a cornerstone of his own campaign. Now, George Bush finishing third in that caucus, buddy, you got the the groundwork for a, you know, in professional wrestling, you'd call it a steel cage match. <laughs> it's going to happen in New Hampshire because George Bush has got to fight and claw his way back in it. Of course, Bob Dole thinks he's got uh, the momentum He's leading because he had done so well in Iowa. And, of course, you've got to galvanize the religious right now, setting the stage, and it turns into a barn burner of a primary in New Hampshire in 1988. The eight days in February 1988 between the Iowa caucus and the first in the nation primary were a turning point, not just in that campaign, but also in New Hampshire Republican politics. Sitting Vice President George H.W. Bush was on the ropes after finishing behind Senator Bob Dole and televangelist Pat Robertson in Iowa. But his campaign took the gloves off in the Granite State, putting Senator Dole on the defensive. Former News 9 reporter and news director Jack Heath spoke to both candidates on primary eve 1988. In the final few hours of this heated race, the vice president says he is confident, despite the fact that he and Senator Dole are apparently running neck and neck down the stretch. Just a few weeks ago, you were really way ahead, and now it seems that the gap is narrowed, things are tighter. Very tight. What happened? 
1980 revisited. Remember when I came blowing into here and the polls shot down for Ronald Reagan? Turned it right around here and beat me. That's what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm going to win New Hampshire when I lost Iowa. And late this afternoon, Bush, in a last-minute tactic, had former He's Senator Barry Goldwater come to New Hampshire and Channel 9 and cut an endorsement ad. In the ad, Bush said Dole will raise taxes and call for an oil import fee. Is that a, something you would have done if you were way ahead, or was it out of oh, desperation? absolutely. Goldwater is one of the most respected names in New Hampshire. Uh, we'd wanted to have him all along. Senator Dole planned no campaign activities this evening. Instead, he retired to his hotel room here in Merrimack to try and get an early night's sleep. But we caught up with the senator and asked him about tomorrow. Tomorrow's a very important day for all of us, very important day for the people in New Hampshire and around the country. And we're just going to have a little quiet time and reflect on what we've done and hope it's the right thing. Dole seemed unhappy with last-minute tactics by Bush. Well, it's totally inaccurate, and I think uh, the Vice President of the United States uh, shouldn't do things like that. Let me tell you something. So the battle has been fought, and now these two Republican frontrunners await the votes, both claiming they will win. In Merrimack, Jack Heath, News 9. What do you say? Uh, yeah. Joining us now is the poll guru, as he's known in the Twitterverse, Tom Rath. Tom, thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Adam. Thank you for having yeah. me. So you were a senior advisor to Senator Dole back in 1980. Yes, of course, of course. This report offered some foreshadowing of how frustrated Senator Dole with, was with those attacks. What happened on primary election night that he said that really sent his campaign into a tailspin? Well, when it happened, it was just what, what that piece showed. Uh, about middle of that week out before the primary, the Bush people ran an ad called Senator Straddle, mm -hmm. which contrasted the two records and basically said Dole was inconsistent on taxes and some other things. And it rankled him. It was a typical ad. Today we'd find it pretty mild. Mm -hmm. But in those days, he said, you know, they took pieces of it. They weren't, didn't tell a fair story. He got angrier and angrier and angrier about it. And uh, same thing had happened. Our tracking polls had showed dull ahead until that ad really hit. In those days, you really only could be on here in Channel 9. We'd have a lot of other places to go. And w the lead was, was narrowing. And the election day, when I first saw him, he came to my office in Congress. He made campaigning in Nashua. And he felt, he's a great campaigner and a good politician, he felt the bottom had dropped out. He knew that afternoon it, we, we were not going to win. And he was in a very black mood. And it it got worse, and he kept talking about the ad. He was really uh, perseverating about that ad, which he felt was unfair. And it boiled over in an interview with Tom Brokaw, I believe. What, right. did, what did he say? Well, we went into uh, do the net networks. They're all based here in Manchester, and they were in the uh, armory behind uh, the Radisson now. And he went in there, and a bunch of us were in the car, actually, outside. We didn't go in. Rudman was with us and all. And uh, Rudman went in with him, and then he, he gave a pretty aggressive and they put them both on screen together. Mm. And I forget where, where uh, the vice president was, but Dole was here, and he was in the studio, and they said, would you say anything to each other? And Dole said, yeah, I'd tell them to stop lying about my record. And we walked back in the car, there was silence, and Warren said to me, no. <laughs> and we could tell it was not a good night. Now, voters are always looking for those unguarded moments with politicians. Why is it, though, that they're so unforgiving when a politician seems to be complaining, essentially, as Senator Dole was in that Well, case. these are two grown-ups. These are people that were veterans. They had, you know, done a lot of politics between them. And it, 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 it did demonstrate at the time what I'll call the coarsening of politics. Mm. But I mean, these were two really distinguished people, both uh, uh, military veterans, uh, decorated war heroes, and they were fighting over a narrow piece of political geography as to who was the more conservative. And it, was, it really got nasty, and Dole was, was really offended by this. Why was, you mentioned the military record there, Senator Dole seemed like a natural fit almost for New Hampshire. Did he fail to connect here? What happened that, that allowed this... That sort of to slide out of his hands. Well, I, I think they were, he, he was the Washington politician, mm. maybe in a way that George Bush wasn't. Um, Bush did have a little bit of the imprimatur of having served eight years with Ronald Reagan, who was still the most popular. He didn't endorse, but he was the single most popular person around. Uh, and they were able to hit Dole with an ad, what, is, what, is, what was then and remains today the most potent weapon in New Hampshire. You're soft on taxes. Mm. And that just resonated exactly as it does in our governor's race. And it really caught 
Trump. And after this primary, uh, Vice President Bush was running downhill towards the nomination, but there was some political wreckage left over here in New Hampshire, particularly in the Republican Party, where you had sort of Senator Rudman on one side and then the Sununus and Greggs on the other, but there was fractures all over the place. Well, yeah, and, it, and there was an, always an issue about uh, be, be, somewhere in between the Greggs, who had started out as the lead uh, advisor to Bush, and then the Sununus had gotten in, or Governor uh, Johnson who had gotten in, and there was a little friction there. Uh, Warren, in the end of the day, we got along with everybody we and uh, he 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 made up but it was not a happy thing but it did it there was a split and there was no question about it um, and it, it mattered uh, come uh, november yeah all right tom thank you for your perspective Adam, thank you much appreciated yes, and sir. thank you for joining us for this installment of primary vault 1988 the race for the republican presidential nomination had been a tough and bitter one bob dole had pulled off a huge win in iowa and he had a head start going in and leading in New Hampshire, only to have been hit with an intense ad campaign labeling Bob Dole as Senator Straddle on taxes. George Bush and Bob Dole on leadership. George Bush led the fight for the INF Treaty. Bob Dole straddled until the polls told him it was popular. Bush says he won't raise taxes, period. Dole straddles. He's been on both sides, and you know what that means. Dole actually advised other senators to avoid getting into trouble by, quote, voting for a bill that fails and against a bill that passes, unquote. That's why he's becoming known as Senator Straddle, George Bush, presidential leadership. All while Bush was out in New Hampshire shoveling snow and driving forklifts and pickup trucks and uh, carrying stuff and doing all the things that Bob Dole couldn't do because of his disability. What's the difference? Bob Dole led the fight to save Social Security. George Bush had nothing to do with it. Bob Dole pushed President Reagan's tax cuts through the Senate. George Bush had nothing to do with it. Bob Dole is leading the fight to ratify President Reagan's INF Treaty while making sure the Russians don't cheat. George Bush has nothing to do with it. Bob Dole will make a difference for America. The difference is leadership. Dole for president. Five remaining candidates are locked in a crucial test of political strength, which New Hampshire voters will decide upon in two days. But the bottom line is this. We can't lose our clean water and our clean air. If we lose the environment, we've lost the battle. Noriega ought to get out of there. When you can get Jesse Helms and Ted Kennedy to join in an amendment condemning Noriega, you've seen everything but the millennium. And, you know... See, Bob Dole grew up in Kansas in a small farm town. Didn't have the prep school education or the, the sterling silverware or the bumper pool table in the basement. Didn't have the shower massage, the five-way adjustable heads, the sit-down lawnmower. Bob Dole didn't have these. Things. Now, wait a minute. Can I say something here? George, I'm not finished yet. No, I'm not going to back down. I didn't Bob, have a little chrome here. hat with the George... Well, you have to have a fairly thick skin. <laughs> Particularly get in the political side. The Wall Street Journal, for example, ran the following headline over a profile last fall, which you probably remember. Ferocious ambition drives political junkie dough, but candidate lacks carefully fixed philosophy. Otherwise, it's a very objective piece. Yeah. I know it, you know it, and the people here tonight know it. American people know it. We all know it. Bob Dole from Russell, Kansas is going to be the next president of the United States, so why don't you just go on back home to your summer home in Maine? Your automatic garage door opener. <laughs> your electric state night. I am a conservative. I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to suggest otherwise, but I think you can be a conservative and still be sensitive and compassionate. And if we're going to build the Republican Party as I want to build the Republican Party, then I want to reach out and bring more people in. The one chairmanship I kept when I was majority leader was nutrition committee dealing with the WIC program, food stamps, school lunch. Because I understand those programs, understand the need for those programs. Bush won. And on election night, on national TV, Bob Dole melted down for all of America to see. Mr. Vice President, if you look right down at that monitor, you'll see the man that you beat tonight. That's uh, Senator Bob Dole, who is standing by in his headquarters. Anything you'd like to say to him at this point? No, just wish him well and meet him in the South. And Senator Dole, is there anything you'd like to say to the Vice President? Yeah, stop lying about my record. That ended Bob Dole's 1988 campaign. And to say that the two men were bitter rivals uh, would be putting it mildly. 
When people ask me why I ran for president, I will say because I wanted to make a difference. And that desire will remain with me for as long as I live. And so I congratulate George Bush and wish him well in November because as I've said many, many times, the bottom line is keeping the White House Republican. That's the bottom line. Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Democratic side, you have a very interesting race with a lot of big figures in it that kind of turns into a train wreck. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that happens, happens to a man, a senator from Delaware, who we all know today, is current president Joe Biden. And here he is getting in the race. After conceding just last weekend that no one knows me, Senator Joseph Biden of Delaware today became the fifth Democrat to declare he's seeking the party's presidential nomination. Lim Tucker has our report. In 1988, the clarion call for my generation is not, it is our turn, but rather, it is our moment of obligation and opportunity. He is Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. from Delaware, 44 years old, 14 years in the U.S. Senate Chairman Judiciary Committee, a Democrat who calls himself a pragmatic liberal. He has a reputation as maybe the best orator in the Senate, but a long-winded one. And he is criticized by some in his party for being a senator and candidate of themes, not substance. Biden rejects that criticism, but today, oratory and themes were very much on display. And for a decade led by Ronald Reagan, self-aggrandizement has become the full-throated cry of this society. I've got mine, so why don't you go get yours? His weak points are um, a lack of uh, legislative record, a... um, somewhat skeptical acceptance as to whether uh, he has ideas as big as his words or his mouth. Biden comes in behind most other Democrats in the early polls, but has assembled a well-respected staff and, more importantly, has raised far more money than any of his competitors. Lem Tucker, CBS News, Wilmington. Now, you heard at the beginning of our show a, a, a little introduction about or discussion about Lee Atwater, the great uh, campaign guru of the Republican Party that had worked for Strom Thurmond who, and who will be George Bush's ace in the hole at getting caught back up from a 17-point deficit. And if you, it, the few times that Mike Dukakis and his people pop back up after this election's over with, they're always very sanctimonious about how Lee Atwater uh, behaved. And, and granted, I do not condone some of this this dirty politics that Mr. Atwater did do with the Willie Horton ads. But don't let Dukakis fool you because his people showed up and they had dossiers on Joe Biden about 
Joe Biden's plagiarism. And that derailed the Joe Biden campaign. But I will have to say, when I've listened to what he supposedly plagiarized, the big thing being Neil Kinnock, but the New York Times put a, a, a thing together that sort of shows you where people were talking and Joe Biden's words. And, I, you know, yes, they sound very similar to uh, great speeches by great people, but all people who give speeches, and I give them, listen to other speeches for ideas and phrasing and ways to put it together. And you can't stop the flow of a speech to say, and John F. Kennedy said, you know, if you're putting something together that's relatively generic. And when you listen to what the accusations are about Joe Biden, and I'm not the biggest fan of the president's, uh, though it seems like I'm always defending him. He was a friend of Strom Thurmond's, and so I, I, I did like him a lot. But it, it, when you listen to it, 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 it sure seems like a stretch to me. But it happened to Joe Biden, courtesy of the Mike Dukakis campaign. So don't let them whine later on about George Bush's campaign when they had derailed Joe Biden. But this standard is not a measure of how we can evaluate the condition of our society cannot measure the health of our children, the quality of our education, the joy of their play. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. Let us pledge that our generation of Americans will pay any price, bear any burden, accept any challenge, and meet any hardship to secure the blessings of prosperity and the promise of opportunity for our children. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. And I started thinking as I was coming over here, why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university. Why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to be able to get to university? Why is it that my wife, who's sitting out there in the audience, is the first in her family to ever go to college? Why is Glennis the first woman in her family in a thousand generations to be able to get the university? No, it's not because they weren't as smart. It's not because they didn't work as hard. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. Does anybody really think that they didn't get what we had because they didn't have the talent or the strength or the endurance or the commitment? Of course not. It was because there was no platform upon which they could stand. If I'd have been Joe Biden, I think I'd have just told them to kiss my grits or some variation of that saying. <laughs> that just, it's just, it's very generic. And I just don't see how that derailed the man's presidential campaign. Largely probably because he led it. And perhaps in a way it worked out because, you know, he had uh, a medical emergency not long after that uh, plagiarism uh, charge was made and he dropped out. Uh, the brain aneurysm crisis that he had, health crisis that he had, happened not too long after that. Now, he's not the only game in town. There is another political player in that race that really captivated the Democratic Party and in a lot of ways uh, really made an impact across the nation with people. And that was Jesse Jackson, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan, perhaps, but I recognize his talents on, on the podium and the fact that he gave Mike Dukakis a run for his money in 1988. And not only did he do that, uh, there was some controversy at the Democratic National Convention going in because he wasn't picked to be the vice president. And that, I think, was the first big blunder of the Dukakis campaign, and you're going to see it will erode that 17-point lead that he had. You know, I, I, later on you'll hear 
John Chancellor make a point that Dukakis did things backwards. He went out and tried to win all these swing voters, and he didn't solidify his base in the Democratic Party. And I can tell you that the lack of enthusiasm was there, and amongst African Americans who are a humongous voting block in the Democratic Party. Jesse Jackson was who they thought should have been the vice presidential pick. And, uh, and, and there were other Democrats, my grandfather being one of them, who was stunned that Jesse Jackson, having done as well as he did, did not get chosen to be vice president. Instead, Michael Dukakis picked Lloyd Benson, who had been a Texas senator, trying, I guess, to win over Texas, and a little bit of a jab at George Bush, because Lloyd Benson is one of the people who defeated uh, George Bush. In, he's the man who defeated him in his second run for the United States Senate in Texas. But Americans can see behind the facade, and what we see worries us greatly. I've been waiting for something to happen for a week or a month or a year. With the blood in the ink of the headlines and the sound of the crowd in my ear. You might ask what it takes to remember. When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war America began a search for an honest vision of who we are as a people and of the problems we face as a nation. We searched for that vision as Democrats, and as Democrats, we found it, a vision of hope. We are bigger than one language, bigger than one culture, bigger than one race, bigger than one religion. This is America. Let's expand. Let's grow. Let's build. Let's keep hope alive. From far back in a crowded field, America began to hear a message of hope, of justice, of new direction. And we began to remember the acts of courage that changed the face of America. Some 24 years ago, you marched across that bridge to give all Americans the right to vote. Probably one of the greatest historic acts that ever was passed. I know Reverend Jackson, I was on the other side. So we're very happy to have you back in Selma. It's a great deal of pride to welcome you as a presidential candidate. We Democrats welcomed Jesse Jackson and his message. We rediscovered the soul of the Democratic Party. And we learned that we can be a strong, productive nation with a vibrant, growing economy. And yet, not lose our compassion or our sense of justice. We Democrats began to lead America again with vision, with hope, with action. Now, we will choose our candidate for president. And in November, we will regain the White House. Because in 1988, we found our vision. Jackson fights for the homeless. Hope. Jackson fights for daycare.
Fasten your seatbelts. Jesse Jackson has arrived to deliver the most widely anticipated speech of this convention. Even though he is not the presidential nominee, he is clearly the most gifted orator in the Democratic Party today. In the words of no less than Richard Nixon, who does not necessarily admire him ideologically, he says of Reverend Jackson, he's the only real poet in American politics today, and he does know how to deal with a crowd like this. So finally, we've got Michael Dukakis now. I will tell you that he is a candidate that I know the least about and who has vanished after leaving office. <laughs> and so after this campaign, really, he went back. He was governor of Massachusetts for another year, and I think he taught college in Massachusetts. He's still living, uh, and he still pops up occasionally, but uh, he did not have the same staying power as a Bob Dole or, or uh, Al Gore or, you know, John Kerry or any of the folks who lost elections, uh, Mitt Romney, over the subsequent years. Uh, but uh, anyway, he was a nominee. He ends up winning. He was running on sort of this Massachusetts miracle uh, that he, he, he felt like he had performed in, in Massachusetts. But uh, the Bush people went to work on that. But here is his announcement. It did not come as a surprise, but Michael Dukakis did make it official today, declaring his candidacy for president. Dukakis made his formal announcements in a cross-country campaign swing through the Northeast, the Midwest, and the South. Before enthusiastic supporters, Dukakis asked to be tested, not on his rhetoric, but on his record. Governor Dukakis was officially off and running as of 9.30 this morning. In choosing Manchester as his starting point, he remembered his parents who started their new life in America in the same city. Remembering the words of New Hampshire's favorite son, Daniel Webster, Dukakis officially began his presidential campaign. Inspired by Webster's words in the office I seek, pledging not only to enforce the law but also to obey it, a son of Greek immigrants named Mike Dukakis declares his candidacy for the presidency of the United States. Dukakis then used a question-answer approach used by another son of Massachusetts. Ask more than what kind of president we will be. Ask what kind of people we are and what kind of people we have around us. Ask more of your candidates, because the next president is going to be asking more of you. To be producers, not just consumers. To be citizens, not just spectators. To contribute your best to America. After his speech, several invited guests signed up to campaign for Dukakis. I'm originally from Massachusetts, and um, admire him greatly for his integrity, his honesty, his efforts to help um, all walks of people. He's really laid it on the line. He's not just mentioning Seabrook in speeches, and he's not just simply saying that he's against it. He has done concrete things to help us citizens in New Hampshire. The second stop on Dukakis's announcement day trip brought him to his own front yard. Eyewitness newsman Mike Macklin reports on Boston's send-off for this country's newest presidential candidate. With his wife Kitty at his side, Dukakis walked from his statehouse office across Beacon Street to Boston Common, where thousands of cheering supporters greeted him at a noontime rally. Many had skipped lunch to watch the 53-year-old third-term governor make history. Among those who arrived early, this group of senior citizens who came from Brockton by bus. I'm very excited about it, to be honest with you. Someone from Massachusetts would be great. Once on stage, Dukakis greeted a host of political dignitaries on hand for the occasion. Close by, Dukakis' family members, including the candidate's mother and children. Repeating the message he delivered earlier in Manchester, Dukakis sounded themes of economic prosperity, of competence and integrity in government. Two years from now, a new president will enter the White House. We can't possibly predict all of the problems and all of the challenges that that person will face. But we can predict the character and the competence of the person who enters the Oval Office. I welcome those tests. Reaction to Dukakis's speech was glowingly positive. I think Michael is talking about what's really important to the country right now, and I think he provides a story out of Massachusetts that's very important for the country to hear. I think he's going to do very well. The governor really uh, rose to the occasion, said all the right things, sent out the right messages, not only for the people here and 
uh, Massachusetts, but across the country. I think he's uh, uh, had a superb past a few weeks, and uh, uh, I believe he'll get the nomination and win the election. But no one was more proud of Michael Dukakis on this day than the candidate's 83-year-old mother. Wonderful, beautiful. Going into the Republican convention, Dukakis had a 17-point lead. Almost, it seemed insurmountable. Uh, but there was a campaign of what not to do. These folks... Dukakis ran a campaign where they made just one mistake after another and how they dealt with it. One of the things they did was just go away during the Republican convention and not answer anything. Uh, then, like I said, they, they kind of worked at win, when trying to win swing voters all over and then ended up in a lot of ways alienating their base. But one thing that was really out of their control was George Bush and the speech that he gave on the night that he accepted the 1988 uh, convention speech. And of course, it very famously, he made a promise that would come back to haunt him, read my lips. But the speech from start to finish was a powerful one that began the road to getting George Bush into the game. There are a lot of great stories in politics about the underdog winning, and this is going to be one of them. The 1988 speech by George Bush at the public convention is, I think, one of the really great underrated political speeches uh, of 20th century. For seven and a half years, I've helped the president conduct the most difficult job on earth. Bush had been in public office for many years. He'd been vice president for eight years up to that point, but people just didn't know him. Now you must see me for what I am, the Republican candidate for president of the United States. George Bush had a couple of questions he had to answer for himself. One was, how do I show I'm my own man? Bush has really been the underdog in this race. Dukakis had a huge lead over Bush in the polls. And there was this sense of Bush that he was kind of this, uh, he was a wimp. And Newsweek ran a cover article on this uh, called The Wimp Factor. And so you see a lot of tough talk. The fact is they talk and we deliver. He had a lot to accomplish in this convention speech. He needed to show people that he was tough. He needed to show people that he could carry forward the Reagan legacy. And he really had to clarify the choice between himself and Dukakis. First of all, there's a policy goal here, which is A, to get across the idea that Republicans are going to protect your wallets from Democrats who want to tax you. The second thing is he casts in a way that makes him look as tough as possible. My opponent won't rule out raising taxes. But I will, and the Congress will push me to raise taxes, and I'll say no. And they'll push, and I'll say no. And they'll push again, and I'll say, read my lips. No new taxes. That line showed President Bush as a man of conviction. And conviction is valued. Americans want their president to stand for something. George H.W. Bush was not known as a funny guy. In politics, the best kind of humor is self-deprecating. If you're Chris Rock, you can make fun of other people. If you're a politician, people like it when you make fun of yourself. It shows humility. I'll try to be fair to the other side. I'll try to hold my charisma in check. And uh, I... It's a very deft, very effective use of humor, both to humanize himself, but also it's to eviscerate his opponent. I'm the one who will not raise taxes. My opponent now says he'll raise them as a last resort or a third resort. But when a politician talks like that, you know that's one resort he'll be checking into. And I... And so he's taking these shots at Dukakis without seeming cruel. That is one of the most effective uses of humor in political speeches. But let's be frank, things aren't perfect in this country. There are people who haven't tasted the fruits of the expansion. If people had a rap on the Republican Party, is that it wasn't compassionate enough. And the effort here, I think, is to cast his proposals as ones that aren't just favoring the wealthy, which is what, you know, the sort of perennial charge Democrats would make against Republicans. 
Some would say it's soft and insufficiently tough to care about these things. But where is it written that we must act if we do not care, as if we're not moved? Well, I am moved. I want a kinder and gentler nation. Bush is trying to walk the line in this speech, and I think he does it very successfully, between owning the Reagan legacy, promising to carry it forward, but almost promising Reaganism with a human face. He's taking the wimp factor, and he's making it a virtue. This is my mission, and I will complete it. It's one of the rare examples of a speech that actually, I think, did help him win. The poetry in the speech, self-deprecating humor. And it was funny, and it was lighthearted, and it made him more human to the American people. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you. Then comes the ad wars, and this is where uh, Bush had a huge advantage, and Dukakis made an extraordinarily horrible mistake. And then there is, of course, the Willie Horton ad that changes the game that was done by an outside uh, group. But the ad wars were where Dukakis would end up probably losing. Michael Dukakis promised not to raise taxes. But as governor, he imposed the largest tax increase in Massachusetts history. He promised jobs. But since 1984, Massachusetts lost 90,000 blue-collar jobs. He promised less spending, but spent at a greater rate per capita than any other governor in America. And now he wants to do for America what he's done for Massachusetts. America can't afford that risk. The Environmental Protection Agency called Boston Harbor one of the dirtiest harbors in America. But not long ago, Governor Dukakis proposed a way to help clean it up by dumping Massachusetts sewage sludge off the New Jersey shore, just 106 miles from New York. In fact, the Dukakis administration actually requested a permit to dump here. Now Michael Dukakis says he wants to do for America what he's done for Massachusetts. New Jersey can't afford to take that risk. Michael Dukakis says he wants to protect our environment. But the EPA called Boston Harbor the dirtiest waterway in America. He says he wants to protect our beaches. But he tried to dump Massachusetts sewage sludge off the New Jersey shore. He says he opposes offshore drilling. But he supported oil drilling off the Massachusetts coast. And now Michael Dukakis says he wants to do for America what he's done for Massachusetts. California can't take that risk. It was a ridiculous, it was a manifestly ridiculous thing to do. And we shouldn't have done it. Our campaign went through kind of an arc going up where we leading to the nomination and, the, and coming out of the convention when we were looking like we were going to win. Uh, we were 16 points up on Bush. He went on vacation, which no candidate will ever do again during the Republican convention, he went out of sight, and that was a terrible mistake. All through the campaign, it had been known that Dukakis had a weakness uh, on national defense issues. He was, after all, going against a guy who had been vice president of the United States for eight years, who had been director of central intelligence, who had, among other things, been a World War II hero, having been shot down uh, in his airplane and recovered by a submarine. And so it's decided that this crucial week that they are going to spend at least three full days on the road really talking nothing but national defense. There would be a ride in the tank, and then there would be a speech at the same site. I, I didn't think it was a good idea. I was very nervous about this event from the beginning. Our reservations all were about awkwardness. Uh, Mike Dukakis is five foot eight. Getting into the tank was a little bit tricky. So our first concern was how do we get him in this thing in full view of the press uh, in ways that are going to not embarrass him. And we had a solution to that, which was um, he would put his tank suit on, which is required uh, for anyone going around the tank so they can yank you out uh, in case there's a problem. Uh, he would put that on and he would climb into the tank inside this large kind of hangar-like facility. We would open doors and he would roll out in the tank. So problem number one was solved. But problem number two was a bigger one. It's scary and dangerous to sit up in the turret of a tank without a helmet on. If you fell from there 
at speed, you could really get hurt. And there's no way that you could hear the kind of uh, guided tour that the tank commander was going to be given without the helmet and the microphone. However, um, one cardinal rule of advance is never, ever put your candidate in any kind of hat or headgear. This seems to go back to 1927, uh, President Calvin Coolidge is presented with uh, a Native American headdress. If somehow a politician uses costume to change a perception of one's character different from who they truly are, viewers tend to raise questions. And this was kind of the mother of all hats. We knew it would look bad. We had um, worn it ourselves. We had looked in the mirror. And so we went back and said, listen, we've got a real problem. He's not going to look good in this thing, and we are really worried about it. And so the people on the Dukakis plane, there's a huddle, and they say, we should send Jack Weeks, the governor's trip director, off the plane to go directly to Sterling Heights. Uh, Jack is, um, he was a brilliant trip director, and he generally made the right decision about things. And I was glad that it was no longer going to be my decision. Uh, but Jack is intimidating and um, has a steely, blue-eyed stare, and you didn't want to get in Jack's way. Jack came out to the site to take a look, and we explained what our reservations were, and he understood that. And so he made a decision that, in retrospect, I think everybody agrees was not a great one. We would make two passes of the press riser. The first would be without the helmet, uh, and that would be the picture, as Jack put it. And then he would put the helmet on and make another pass of the press riser to show the tank in action. And, you know, I thought, but why wouldn't they just use the other picture? What? And, but Jack seemed to think that that would be a suitable solution. And people uh, at my station on the campaign did not question Jack's decisions about advance. We had 90 traveling press with us, or thereabouts, including famous people. We had Sam Donaldson and the network anchors were with us and people from the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, when the tank came out, there was just this kind of instant reaction, and it wasn't the reaction we were hoping for. It was hilarity. They started laughing at him. I remember Sam Donaldson laughing. Some of them were laughing so hard that they were kind of doubled over. They just thought it was the most ridiculous thing that they had seen Mike Dukakis do in the course of this campaign. I knew we were in trouble. Didn't know how much trouble, but I knew we were in some trouble. I knew it was a mistake on their part the minute I saw it. The director of advertising for the Bush Quail campaign, Sig Rogich, who had worked on Ronald Reagan's 1984 re-election campaign, the so-called Morning in America uh, campaign, he wants to spend as much time as he can making uplifting, positive spots for Vice President Bush, but he's not one to miss an opportunity if it falls in his lap. I remember seeing it and thought how foolish he looked and what a great TV commercial that would make. Uh, here was a guy who was wearing a, what looked like a Snoopy Dog hat, and he wanted to be commander-in-chief of, of our country. And I was a little shocked that they put him in that setting. You know, there's always been a rule for me, never put a guy in a hat if you can avoid it. And what results is this incredibly powerful ad that airs on Tuesday, October 18th, the third game of the World Series between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Oakland A's. Michael Dukakis has opposed virtually every defense system we developed. He opposed new aircraft carriers. He opposed anti-satellite weapons. He opposed four missile systems, including the Pershing II missile deployment. Dukakis opposed the stealth bomber and a ground emergency warning system against nuclear attack. He even criticized our rescue mission to Grenada and our strike on Libya. And now he wants to be our commander-in-chief. America can't afford that risk. Never put your candidate in a hat, I think, is the lesson number one. Uh, and lesson number two is don't be reactive. Uh, don't do campaign events because your opponent has done something similar. And don't try to force square pegs into round holes. It was a ridiculous, it was a manifestly ridiculous thing to do. And we shouldn't have done it. And then there's Willie Horton. And 
it is what it is. Uh, it was a a, a, a group, uh, an outside group with that paid for this ad and put it up. Um, I don't know how believable it really is that Bush and them really told them to take it down. It ran for about four or five weeks, but it did a lot of damage. Now, there was also another ad, this is one I'm going to show you, that the Bush campaign had um, also. But uh, but the, the story of Willie Horton is a pretty tough one that says what a rough business politics can be even in that day and time. Governor Dukakis's liberal furlough experiments failed. We are all victims. First, Dukakis let killers out of prison. He also vetoed the death penalty. Willie Horton stabbed my teenage brother 19 times. Joey died. Horton was sentenced to life without parole, but Dukakis gave him a furlough. He never returned. Horton went on to rape and torture others. I worry that people here don't know enough about Dukakis's record. Mike Dukakis and Willie Horton changed our lives forever. He was serving a life term without the possibility of a parole when Governor Dukakis gave him a few days off. Horton broke into our home. For 12 hours, I was beaten, slashed, and terrorized. My wife, Angie, was brutally raped. When his liberal experiment failed, Dukakis simply looked away. He also vetoed the death penalty bill. Regardless of the election, we worry that people don't know enough about Mike Dukakis. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. It's like a baseball player. A lot of times you're going to do an ad and you strike out. Nobody even cares about it. It's rare that you have one where you swing and you hit and you just watch it sail. My assistant called me up and said they caught Willie Horton. And I said, well, what do you mean they caught him? He's been in prison for life. Why are murderers being let out into the streets? We learned fairly quickly that he was out on a weekend pass, a furlough, they called it. And he invaded a couple's house in Maryland, brutalized the man and raped the woman. Dukakis believed the furlough policy would encourage better behavior in prison by lifers. They need some kind of incentive or there will be, you know, chaos inside. It was a big story in the local papers. So the minute we had the nomination, we knew we were going to face Willie Horton. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton. I ran an independent expenditure, which is an outside organization that isn't involved with the actual campaign. We were scared. Governor Dukakis, who was running rather large leads in the polls, was going to sweep to victory. So it called for some dramatic campaign action. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. The impact and the effect, I believe, had a great deal to do with Willie Horton's race. Horton was an ugly guy, and he looked like everybody's stereotype of a black thug. I can't believe when they made those ads, they didn't know what they were doing, raising racial fears. Willie Horton was a hardened criminal. People are rightly scared. It doesn't matter if he's black or white or yellow or purple. But what ultimately killed Dukakis was not the Willie Horton ad. It was the Polly Pavilion answer. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? That was as close as we were going to ever get to the Willie Horton question. We must have done the answer a thousand times. I know what it's like to be the victim of crime. I'm on the side of victims. No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. I don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent. And it came right across the plate, and he didn't see it. It was very clear after that first question we were going to go into free fall. It was probably the first of the great independent expenditures. We didn't have any involvement with the Bush campaign. We had a commonality of interest to continue the Reagan revolution. And the ad impacted public policy. All across the country, I'll always be glad I did it. That 
campaign made clear that the best way to destroy someone was to find an outside group to do the kind of ad that the candidate himself can't do because he'll get killed for doing it, such as Swift Boat veterans, for instance. When the chips were down, you could not count on John Kerry. John Kerry is no war hero. Now it's become just a usual tactic. In the wake of that race, every Democratic politician I knew was tripping over themselves to vote for three strikes laws, mandatory sentencing, anything they could vote for to prove they were tough on crime. What Willie Horton did was create a generation of legislators who voted for everything. And the result was crowded prisons, suspicion in the minority community, tensions that continue to this day. In a way, I tie this to the state of America today. This was somehow when we started beating the heck out of each other for totally political purposes. This ad, I think, hit at the inner fears of people, and it's just escalated over the last, what, 28 years? Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.